Welcome to Create Tomorrow, the WGSM podcast. I'm your host, Bethan Ryder, and this is the final episode in our London Design Festival special series. In this episode, we explore Material Matters, a fair that sprung from a podcast of the same name and is now in its second year at the wonderfully atmospheric Barge House Oxo Tower on London's South Bank. We speak to the journalist and podcaster behind it, Grant Gibson, and dip into a few of the exhibits, catching up with design duo Pearson Lloyd, contemporary crafter Gareth Neal, and Danish textile artist Tanya Kerst. Hi, so it's uh, episode three of our London Design Festival special series of podcasts. And I'm here at Material Matters, a fair that's taking place in Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf. And I'm here with the founder, Grant Gibson, who has a very well-established podcast called Material Matters, which he started in 2019. So, Grant, we're here. It's year two of the fair. You've not had much sleep. How are you feeling about this year's fair? Well, pretty good now. I mean, we're literally going to open our doors to the press an hour and a half's time. And there are still people sweeping up and generally moving things around. But it's taking a really nice shape. So I'm kind of happy now. Ask me that about four hours ago, I'd be slightly different response but it's looking good thank you for asking it's a beautiful space it's got all this sort of distressed walls and then you've got all these interesting material objects inside we described it as unadorned unadorned (laughs) how do you feel like the fair has moved on this year it's taken a step i think we have some of the same exhibitors so we have Hagen Hinderdale, for, in- for instance, who are here, Hydro, who were here last year. We have some different exhibitors. I mean, what's been really interesting is just the number of people who have got in touch and want to be part of it, which is great. So it's almost, it's almost self-selecting in many regards. Which materials are you most excited about? Because you obviously talk a lot about materials with designers and creators on your podcast. I know that like mycelium is present here and uh, coffee waste and things like this. But what other sort of interesting innovations are you seeing coming through? Well, I'm fascinated by hemp. I'm very big into hemp. Hemp is a great plant. It's wildly misunderstood. I think I'm right in saying that you still have to apply to the home office if you want to grow a field of hemp, which is bonkers. And you can use it from anything from bread to buildings. We have a, an exhibitor on our first floor called Material Magic who's creating furniture from hemp and potato starch. And, um, you know, I kind of find that quite intriguing. We had Steve on from Margent Farm, so uh, we know about the power of hemp and hempcrete. You've got lots of little capsule collections from students as well. We've got graduate work, but we've got work from significant brands. We have recycled aluminium from Hydro. We have people working in silkworm solution. We have people 3D printing mycelium vessels. We have Gareth Neal 3D printing three times recycled polymer. You know, there really is a smorgasbord of interesting ideas in this show. I mean, it's a joy, actually, to be in this building for four days. And you've got lots of talks as well. Is there, is there a highlight there? Are you doing any of those? I'm doing a live version of Material Matters with Michael Young. Oh, great. Which isn't being recorded, so you have to come and see it. But that's Saturday morning. There's a lot of stuff about materials. There's an awful lot of people in the show working waste, so we have a talk all about waste. So it's obviously going well. What are your ambitions for the fair for the future? Well, I mean, we like this venue and I don't see us moving in the foreseeable future. It's a question of refining it and working with the fabric of the building to improve it. I'm very keen that the brand becomes international and we would like to take it to other other territories, I suppose is the uh, the jargon you're supposed to use, right? Other design festivals. Other design mean. festivals. Yes, that's what I mean. And there's nothing in the works that you can mention yet. but this. No, might... but we are in discussions. All right, brilliant. Well, thank you very much. We're going to go and explore some material matters. Enjoy. 
We're on the second floor of Material Matters and there's a lovely capsule exhibition from Pearson Lloyd. And we're here with Pearson Lloyd right now, Tom Lloyd and Luke Pearson. Can you tell us, Tom, the name of the exhibition? It's Material Change. And tell me, it's about your shift to try and move towards circular design systems through some of your objects and pieces. Yes, it's a review actually of about 10 of our products in the last decade where we've sort of just broken them apart literally and analysed the decisions we made and the materials we chose to make those products in a circular fashion. So it's great. There's kind of like plywood pieces on the wall and then you've kind of really got cross sections of a lot of the pieces like sofas and chairs and and then down the middle you've got these beautiful kind of mobiles of sort of knitted textiles on these sort of timber frames or bamboo frames tell me about one of the pieces let's dive in as tom was saying we've been sort of trying to design responsibly and intelligently for an awful long time but we haven't been able to build in uh, certain sort of factors into the process Um, for example if we took the how project where we designed a a chair out of um, pure polypropylene in 2010 the ambition was to design something with no glass fibre, because if you put glass fibre into it, it stops it being circular. And at the time, we talked about whether we could make it in recycled plastic, and simply there weren't the waste streams available. We were very clear with how that we didn't want to put any glass fibre in, because when those waste streams do come available, then we can make it out of pure but non-virgin polypropylene. At the end of its life, it can be made into another material again. So this is an interesting project for us, because when we designed it, We were forced into using virgin material, but it was really planned for the future, um, for a future waste stream which would become available. Lots of people are now making chairs and saying they're made out of recycled plastic, but they're putting glass fibre in, so at the end of their life, they can't be recycled again. Are you finding there is a real mind shift about moving towards circular systems with clients? I think with our clients, there is definitely a willingness and ambition to, to understand circularity. Each client is a different state of maturity in that journey and some are scared. Some thinks it's going to hurt their business, but they want to do it from a values perspective. Others are trying to predict the sort of legislative environment in the future. Others are responding to the, the, the demands of their users. So there's a, it's a very mixed sort of palette of decisions that are forcing change. Are they happy to spend a little bit more to get there? They are, but I think also... Interestingly, we're proving that it's not always... I think there's a lot of, there's a perception that sustainability is expensive and actually it doesn't have to be. There's some very basic ground rules around circularity that you can build into a design brief, which doesn't mean it makes it more expensive than, a, than an unsustainable product. Can you maybe give us an example with one of the pieces here? So, for example, a product... We've, we've just done a product called Colab for Senator, which is an education system, and we've simply made it very, very disassemblable. So it's designed for repair... So actually using simple tools on site allows you to modify or repair a product that's been damaged. That's a, that doesn't take any more material. It doesn't take any more expertise to deliver that. It's just a, a mindset that creates that change. What is that product? Could you describe it? It's called Colab and it's a series of tall benches that are designed for contemporary and future education environments in, in British universities. And we're responding to new learning methods, uses of technology post-COVID, new types of hybrid learning, just like we are in the workplace. So tell me about Profim, because this is a sofa made from recycled expanded polypropylene. Some would say that was not a good thing for the environment. Well, I think what we've been trying to talk about with this exhibition is about designing with data, that actually it's about understanding the metrics, and then you can make a very carefully selected bunch of decisions. 
When we were designing the modular sofa system for Profim, the brief was Lego. It was a modular sofa system with a highly sustainable uh, sustainability focus. What we had was the germ of an idea, which was actually to use expanded polypropylene, um, which means we can use a high proportion of recycled material. And at the end of the life, it means that the recycled polypropylene modules can be recycled into something else again. But we also found that there were some other really surprising benefits. It's 40% lighter than a conventional sofa. So the gains in terms of transportation are absolutely phenomenal. Um, it also meant that different people could assemble it on the assembly line. So traditionally, women couldn't uh, carry heavy sofas around and upholster them. Um, because it's so light, different people can upholster it. It also means you can install it very easily. The other thing we did was we developed a system where the cover could be put on by an individual user without any tools, which means you could essentially get your cover in the post and, and reassemble it. Because the thing that generally shortens the life of any upholstery product is the death of the upholstery surface. And because it's too expensive to repair, to send out, it doesn't get repaired, it gets junked. So I think the answer about, does it, is it actually more expensive? This is a product that actually turned out to be much, much more cost-effective to produce and to transport. There is an investment impact to producing that tooling, but over the life of the product, you're going to get that back. And this, I think, just goes to show that you need to think about the whole supply chain. It's not just about the product, right? You've got to think about the shipping and all of that. It's a lot to think about nowadays. There are loads of things to think about. And it, as Tom was talking about earlier, it depends on the nature of the company you're working for as well. So you have to design appropriately for the system that you're going to feed the product into, as well as the company. You know, what do they have access to? They may not have access to that kind of tooling. And Ben AB Friends is a great example of that. We've done a huge range of products using 3D printing, which gives us a huge amount of flexibility to experiment without any basic upfront investment in hard tooling. And those big injection molded tools traditionally use a huge amount of energy before you've even produced a product. So really, there are lots of questions you can ask at the briefing stage to try and understand how you can design intelligently. And it's no doubt that we as designers are having to become much smarter at our of the, the material supply chain, where materials are coming from, what is their source, what's their provenance, to ensure that we can take care of the impact of our products. Okay, I'm going to just throw in one last question of what you are excited to see this week, if you can, in fact, escape your own exhibition. Is there something out there that you want to check out? For me, I'm really interested in material developments and the use of material. I think I've, I've just done some judging actually with, with you on the green grads. And I think what I was super, super excited about is the fact that there are kids coming out of college with no scientific background who are willing to use the internet and the huge resource to actually discover really plausible opportunities. And I think as soon as we get big business pushing these, we're going to see absolutely fantastic developments very, very quickly. Brilliant. Thank you for your time. So on the first floor, we have Gareth Neal, whose work I've seen at Sarah Myerscroft Gallery, which you kind of a mix of craft and digital uh, working in wood. But here you've got some very large scale pieces, a fabulous pink, looks like a knitted chair, literally, and um, these sort of large vessels, one quite tall. This looks like a little bit of a departure. Can you tell us a little bit about these pieces? Yeah, I mean, it's a project that I uh, applied to get a grant for and I was uh, introduced to and got the opportunity to work with a manufacturer in the Netherlands who prints recycled polymer. And uh, our application to get the grant talked about how we might be inspired by craft techniques 
in the 3D printing of plastic. Uh, waste plastic is very um, uh, inconsistent when printed in 3D printing. So we took the idea that if we could embrace the imperfections of the print and introduce structure, like in a basket or a willow work, that we could create kind of very unique, faster, lightweight 3D prints out of polymer. And yeah, the objects here kind of embrace that from, as you say, a knitted pink chair to big uh, lobster baskets, really inspired by lobster pots from Cornwall, from woven structures that have taken on and embraced through looking at crochet, looking at willow work, looking at knitting, looking at weaving. And using the techniques of those crafts, we've managed to take that into completely new direction in 3D printing. Because there's a piece over there that actually looks like the loop pile of a rug. I mean, how complicated was the actual engineering of the digital printer to sort of get here? Well, it's taken a, a year. It's a year's worth of development, not nonstop, but on and off. And it went through three phases. So we just, we, you know, experiment after experiment after experiment, collapse after collapse until finally we managed to get that intricate movement of the nozzle to build structure and it to stop it collapsing and then once we managed to get that we were suddenly off the ground and kind of running and yeah we just wanted to find objects that could convey the story of what we've been doing and now we're going to move on to the objects and the products that we can make from it but at the moment it's just a kind of beautiful experimentation and prototypes and how strong is this material like is that chair totally Chair's really robust, yeah. Outdoor, indoor, robust, any colour. I was going to ask about colour. Is the colour application, is that very sustainable or what kind of colour application? The colour itself is perhaps the only bit that isn't sustainable, but it's like 99.9% generic colour. And then that one bit of pigment that goes in produces all the colour. So the raw material itself comes out a dirty grey, a bit like the chair. So that's that's just your melange of every color of your general waste plastic so really this is looking for like some manufacturers to pick it up to make pieces for absolutely mainstream i mean i think you know the process is there there's no end of materials at our fingertips that we need to use because we've just continually to make piles of it so we've got to do something with it and we've got to start embracing plastic again but make sure it's recycled brilliant thank you so much for your time so when you arrive at Material Matters and you enter the ground floor, there's some beautiful textile banners hanging from the ceiling, um, which are very geometric and colourful. They are the work of Tanya Kirst, who's here with me now, a textile artist from Copenhagen. Hi. Hello. So tell me a little bit about your textiles, and I understand they're made from very sustainable materials. Yes. Planted, my project is made out of hemp, citrus, cellulose, seaweed and pineapple yarn. So yeah, it's a collection of 10 woven tapestries. I developed them at Textile Lab in Tilburg in Holland at the laboratory. Have you always worked with those sorts of materials or is this a new development for you? I have worked with hemp for quite some time, I think eight years now. So this is the first time I try to incorporate other plant fibers in a blend with hemp. And what's the benefit of mixing the fibers? They all have a lot of benefits, but what I think is really interesting is to mix hemp, with it, which is a very matte and dry 
quality together with citrus yarn. It's, it, it's a lot like silk. So you can get some really interesting textures when you weave them together. They look very high end. So you get that kind of quality feel from the mixture of the fibers. Yes. And you can also, the project is also about product development and to see what's possible. For example, the hemp yarn that I have worked with in the tapestries, I have also made a rug collection out of the same yarn, but the thread is made for the rug is made out of 50 thin threads spun together, and then it's suitable for a rug. And for the tapestries, I've only used one thread. So it's possible to develop it into other products for interior products and even fashion, you can make silk, uh, not silk scarves, but you can make scarves that looks a lot like silk with the citrus yarn. And the color palette um, and sort of designs, there's a little bit of Annie Alba's, but what's your inspiration in terms of aesthetic? I've always been inspired by Annie Alba's, but also Joseph Alba's and their homage to the square. I've always found inspiration in that book and his color theories. I did an, a residency at the Albus Foundation some years ago. So I've been studying a lot of color theory as well. And that's also what the project is about. It's a lot about how you experience colors because all the tapestries are developed from seven weft colors. So only seven colors have developed. I think you will find 100 colors in all the tapestries. But when it looks purple, it's not a purple color. It's actually a red and a blue thread woven together. So it looks like purple from a long distance. And when you look at it from a short distance, you see that it's, it's a red and a blue thread. A lot like how you would work with pixels with small dots. And that is, is also what I am trying to show in the exhibition, that you can incorporate more value in many different ways and so when you walk around, the tapestries will change depending on how the light falls on the tapestries, the, the, the viewpoint. You can walk around, you can experience both sides. I've also worked with the backside as there isn't really a front and a backside. So you can place them in an open space and experience them all the way around. So they should be like mobiles rather than wall hangings. Brilliant. Um, and the colours, were you thinking the colours very emotional, emotive aspects design? Why did you choose that particular palette? It's quite calming and a little bit muted, but colour, you know, we, what were your thinking, thinkings about the actual palette you chose? Now it's very technical, but on the loom where the tapestries are woven, there is a white and a black thread. It goes white, black, white, black, white, black. So when I weave with a red thread on a white warp, it becomes light red. And when I weave the red thread on the black thread, it becomes dark red. So I've chosen colors that I could graduate work with gradation in it. So that's why there is a lot of bright colors. And then I have uh, developed the colors afterwards into more muted, calm colors by using the threads on the loom. What's your hope for the material? Do you see it being used for more products in the future or what are you hoping? I hope that I can inspire other designers to incorporate fibers and yarn that you wouldn't normally choose. For example, I'm working on a new rug collection with some of the compositions from the planted exhibition. But as I said before, it can be developed into fashion, it can be developed into clothes. The yarn blend is something that I really hope to do more product development with because it has the potential to be developed into other products. 
What's the end of life for the product? Can it be separated and then biodegradable? All the yarns that I've worked with are degradable. Perfect circular story. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So that's it for episode three. And that wraps up our London Design Festival special series. So thank you to all of our guests and thank you for tuning in. I recommend a visit to Material Matters if you're interested in sustainable design and what the materials of tomorrow might be. And there are so many more installations and events going on during London Design Festival this week. So if you're in town, check their website. And it's a week of design festivals because this Friday we jump from London to Singapore as the Singapore Design Festival kicks off and runs from the 21st of September until the 1st of October. So tune into that one as we discuss the festival highlights and the growth of inclusive design. If you're a subscriber, there's plenty more information on design on our interiors platform where we scour the globe for the latest trends and innovations. And if you want to find out how to subscribe, head over to wgsn.com to discover how you can get access to our service. You can subscribe to the show on all major podcast platforms. And if you like what you've heard, why not leave us a rating and review? And if you're interested in hearing more from us, do check out The Lives of Tomorrow. That's hosted by our CEO, Carly Buzashi, and you can find that on all podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.